and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Maybell Romero, an assistant professor at the Northern Illinois University College of Law, and I am joined by Hannah Haxgard, associate professor at the University of South Dakota College of Law. So welcome back, Hannah. Thank you. And we're here to talk about your new piece, Rural Practices Public Interest Work, and that is appearing in the main law review. Actually, it's already out, isn't it? It is out. Yep. So it came out just here, summer 2019. Yeah. So it's a really exciting piece, um, one that's near and dear to my heart because I have been a rural practitioner before. And um, if you could maybe just tell us what exactly is going on with this rural lawyer shortage. What are we talking about when we talk about this? Yeah, so there's now been a couple of papers written that really establish the fact that we do have a shortage of lawyers in rural areas. If you read the national media, it's easy to run across these articles that say there's too many lawyers, law grads aren't getting jobs. And that may be true in urban areas for certain types of jobs, but it's certainly not true in rural areas. We have parts of the country where we'll have counties that don't have a single lawyer and lots of rural counties that have one or two lawyers. And that just means that the rural population just doesn't have the access to lawyers that they need. So is this problem getting worse then? We don't have a lot of good data. I mean, that's one of the tough things here. But we know that with baby boomers retiring, we're going to continue to see more and more rural lawyers who are retiring. And sadly, they don't have any young attorneys taking over their firm. So there's a lot of solo practitioner baby boomers who don't have an associate to take over. And we need to get new rural lawyers into those areas as the baby boomers start to phase out. Otherwise, we will see the problem get worse and worse. So it sounds like there have at least been rural lawyers that have been willing to practice in these areas in the past. These baby boomer lawyers who are now retiring and, you know, perhaps, um, you know, taking firms with them essentially when they retire and some of their only you know, some of a town or, a, you know, communities only, you know, legal services with them. Um, so what are the sort of barriers to entry in um, rural legal practice then such that people aren't choosing to do that now? Yeah, so we have some idea of barriers to entry. There have been a couple of sort of discrete studies done where we've um, polled law students at different schools. Law students are really concerned about salaries because law students have significant student loan debt, right? So that's something that's different from prior generations is now you don't just have to cover your overhead and try to make a profit, you also have to earn enough to pay your student loans. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing is that compared to the baby boomers, we're now looking at couples where it's dual career couples. And so we have an issue of a lot of concern of first, if I'm single, will I find a spouse? And if I'm married, can my spouse get a job in the rural area? So, I mean, it's it's a number of factors, but certainly salary quality of life, access to amenities, sort of access to a job for a partner. All of those things are really important to law students. Okay. Yeah. It might not exactly be the the lifestyle choice that lots of people associate with when they think of, okay, I'm going to graduate from law school. I'm going to have this glamorous big firm job or something like that. It's not like that at all, is it? No. And not surprisingly, a lot of the people who go to very small towns and rural areas are from those locations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something we would expect to see um, is that people return to their homes because they have an investment in the community. But you're right that although there are some people who just pick up and move to a rural place out of nowhere, there's not a lot who do that. 
You've done some research, though, on some people who have just picked up and moved to a rural place. Um, Why have they done that? Yeah, so... In 2018, I was part of a co-authored article, and my contribution was actually doing a lot of research on South Dakota's program. So South Dakota is the only state that funds rural lawyers to go out and open practices or join an existing firm. So there's two lawyers who are getting those incentive payments that are not from South Dakota, and they did not go to law school in South Dakota. So I talked to both of them on the phone, um, and they said incredibly similar things. They were both looking for traditional public interest jobs. That's Mm -hmm. what they wanted to do. They were on the job market, and then they ran across some national media talking about the funding for South Dakota rural lawyers. And each one of them basically said, that sounds like what I want to do. If I go, I'm basically doing public interest work. I'm serving a community that doesn't have legal access. And then they were drawn in to kind of pick up and move from other states and more urban areas to rural South Dakota and start practicing. Wow. So this sort of reframing of rural practice as public interest really motivated them to move to South Dakota to provide legal services to those communities. Yeah, because even though they were going to be sort of, quote unquote, private practice lawyers, they thought of it as essentially being a public interest lawyer. They were providing critical services that were not there in that community, which is the way many people define public interest lawyering. So are there other fields of study that where there might be some you know, successfully implemented incentives um, that have been used to get professionals to rural areas? Yeah, so there's a really long history of medical um, incentive programs to not just not just MDs, but also nurses, nurse practitioners, right? The list goes on and on is the entire medical field has some pretty established programs to try to bring medical professionals to rural areas. Now, there is one little interesting tidbit that I ran across a number of years ago while researching the medical um, incentive programs, which is that after the Vietnam War ended and the draft ended, IHS had been relying on basically the doctor draft to get doctors to rural reservations. IHS, the United Health Service, saw a massive decrease once they weren't sort of using the doctor draft, and they had to figure out, well, how are we going to get doctors to come to rural reservations to provide critical medical services. And they started a campaign that really focused on the public service, public interest aspect of it, of if you go to this rural reservation, you're not just getting your loans forgiven, right? There's a financial incentive, but beyond that, you're doing this major community service and helping a population that needs medical care. And that was really successful for them starting in the 1970s. Great. So, you know, after having spoken to, you know, those two lawyers in South Dakota who moved to these rural areas and really making these really fantastic and interesting observations about um, these sorts of incentives in sort of the medical field, um, where did you decide to take it next? Are, are you making some proposals in this at all with regard to um, how to treat this in sort of the legal field? I do. I kind of think about this piece in two ways. I mean, one, I think it's kind of a thought piece where I lay out my arguments for why we should think of all rural lawyers, including just sort of rural lawyers who work at firms that we would normally think of as private practice lawyers, as rural lawyers. And then the second piece talks about some implications of if we start conceptualizing and treating all rural lawyers as public interest lawyers, there's going to be some implications that proceed from that. Okay. So you really do envision rural practice in this paper as 
you know, certainly being public interest work. And I want to talk about sort of the reasons why you envision it that way, because, you know, maybe someone, you know, thinks of a rural lawyer in a small private firm. It's like, well, it's a private firm. How can that possibly be publicly interested? There's certainly a profit motive here. You know, they, they can't possibly qualify as being publicly interested. And I don't think they completely understand what rural practice is like. Um, so you outlined four different reasons in your paper. I just want to talk about those in turn. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I say is basically, look, there's a shortage of rural lawyers. We know that. We don't have great data, but we know there's a shortage. But what that means is that all rural lawyers are providing critical services, right? They're providing services to people who otherwise would not be able to access them. So they might be accepting fees, right? Um, We also know that rural lawyers do, um, per lawyer, more low bono and pro bono pro bono services than mm-hmm. urban lawyers, right? So they're doing a lot of kind of traditional public interest work if you think if you include pro bono in that. Um, but people might be able to afford an attorney in their town. They may not be able to afford to drive hours to access an attorney elsewhere. Okay. So do you see as much in the way of sort of field specialization amongst lawyers in rural areas? No. And I actually use the word um, or the phrase mixed practice in the paper. Mm -hmm. So I talk about how rural lawyers tend to actually wear multiple hats. So a lot of them will be um, contracting with the government in different capacities. So they might be a part-time state's attorney because a lot of rural counties They don't have a full-time prosecutor, right? So they have a half-time state's attorney. Most rural counties don't have a full-time public defender. So you have private practice attorneys who contract with the county to do defense work. The same thing with city attorneys, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are a full-time public defender, prosecutor, or city attorney living in an urban area, we would call you a public interest lawyer because or a public service lawyer because we sort of include government service in there. If you live in a rural area... You do those jobs, but they're not, none of them are full time. So you have your true sort of private practice where you represent private clients, but you also represent the state in various ways. You know, there's a really interesting chunk in the paper that I found very relatable having practiced in a rural area for a decade where you mentioned that, look, rural areas, they need all kinds of lawyers. They don't just need, you know, agricultural law or property law or something like that. And you have this interesting list, you know, prosecutors, public defenders, estate planning, family law, um, legal aid. And it's like, well, I actually have done all these things along with construction litigation. And rural practice is much more complicated than I think people realize. You don't have the luxury of specializing in one field. You have to know a whole bunch of them. Um, So I think it's a sort of you know, body of knowledge out there that these rural lawyers have that people don't completely appreciate. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. I was recently at a conference in South Dakota with a bunch of rural lawyers and people went around the room and said, well, what is your practice area? And of course, everybody lists off like, I contract, I'm a prosecutor, I do defense work, and I also do these other five areas. And it's like, well, yeah, you're doing a lot of different stuff and you're not truly specialized. You are sort of truly that small town lawyer who does everything. Yeah, you have to be a bit of a a jack of all trades that way. And from what I've seen and what you notice in what you note, excuse me, in your paper too, um, there's a shortage of all types of lawyers in rural areas. So it's not just like, okay, there are no prosecutors, there are no water law attorneys, it's everything, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we just simply need more attorneys. And a piece of that, of course, is going on too, is you need enough attorneys so you're not having conflicts, right? If you have one person in the county who does family law, well, either only one side of a divorce is going to be represented or the other side has to drive to another county, right? So just having one lawyer is never enough because of conflicts. And imagine sort of you can't do private defense work if you're also the state's attorney, right? So you just need sort of that critical number of lawyers that do sort of practice in all sorts of fields. Yeah. This kind of leads into, you know, a discussion of this concept of mixed practice, lawyers doing lots of different jobs. Um, And I thought it was really interesting what you mentioned here that a lot of states provide legal aid. Well, maybe not a lot, but some Um, they provide legal aid services through, you know, um, providing reimbursements to lawyers. Right. Yeah. So there's a couple of models of legal aid. So the predominant one is you'll have an office and you have full-time attorneys who do legal aid work. Some states also have, um, a, there's another system that you call Judicare, where payments go out to it's sort of like Medicare, where anybody provides the services and then you get reimbursed. Unfortunately, the Judicare model hasn't been really well embraced by states, which is too bad because that's what would operate well in rural areas. So if Judicare payments aren't available, then rural attorneys frequently will end up doing the type of work that would happen at a legal aid office, but they have to do it pro bono Mm -hmm. because there's no one to give them money for doing that work. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's really hard being in that position because sometimes, I mean, what you'll see is that some firms will just forego certain types of work altogether, correct? Yeah. Um, It's one of those areas where a firm might just say, look, we can't afford even to take government contracts, right? Like we can't afford to um, do defense work because those contracts don't cover our overhead. Mm -hmm. Or if there's an associate at the firm who wants to do something like juvenile work or criminal work, well, you're in a situation where that sort of the hourly rate that the state gives you does not cover the associate's salary, which leaves the partner in a situation where they're just losing money by letting their associate do that work, right? And as much as, you know, it's it would be nice to have higher payments, states aren't wanting to do that because we think of lawyers as wealthy, but the reality is that in the states with, you know, $60 an hour hourly fees, that doesn't cover your operating costs and it doesn't cover the salary that you need for a new associate who has to pay off their student loans. Exactly. Um, When I was practicing in Utah, the state bar tried to compile this list of lawyers who were interested in taking on low bono cases, essentially, and um, having a sort of sliding scale um, hourly rate depending on, you know, a a person or a family's income. Um, The problem being, though, that people didn't sign up for it, you know, as much as there's interest in it, where it's like, okay, maybe we can get people connected such that, you know, maybe there won't be any sort of billing issues where people don't pay. Um, Because that does happen a lot in rural practice too. you write off a lot of your work, because people end up not being able to pay it, pay you at all. Um, Just these rates that the state was coming up with, or the state bar, they were just too low to keep the lights on. And it was really troubling. Yeah. And those rates might work really well for bigger firms who sort of have more resources to allocate among their attorneys. But if you're talking to a firm of one or two attorneys, if somebody starts dedicating half of their time to criminal defense work or juvenile work, that just means the firm can't operate and they can't cover their overhead costs. And it leads to all kinds of access to justice issues, even for the people in the community, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay. So... 
you know, these rural lawyers in private practice, or what we usually conceive of as private practice, um, you know, they provide essentially volunteer work by writing off bills, doing low bono work and the like. Um, So, you know, the ABA has these interesting definitions of public interest work. Is that just entirely too narrow then or? Yeah, I think that most of the, the way that we define public interest work is too narrow. I think that we have a situation where in rural areas, what these lawyers are doing is absolutely public interest work. And it's not just the way they represent clients, right? It's not just their availability. It's not just the fact that they do a lot of low bono work. It also is the fact that they actually just provide a lot of kind of non-legal community services, right? In a small town, something like serving on the school board, if you're the only lawyer in town, you're providing a service by being the lawyer who is on the school board. Okay. So, you know, sometimes you'll see that on school boards. Sometimes you'll see that on things like planning and zoning even. Um, You end up becoming sort of a community pillar in a lot of these places, right? Yeah. And I think it helps make communities more vibrant, right? Like you need doctors, but you also need lawyers to make sure that sort of your community businesses are setting up sort of when a business sets up, right? When they write their founding documents, all of that stuff. It's just really important to have a lawyer available. Okay. So I want to talk about uh, a really scary topic for some rural lawyers, rural lawyer salaries. Um, So of course, you know, when I think most people in this country think of, you know, private practice lawyers, they think of something rather glamorous. They think of people being highly paid and, you know, um, running around really like fancy suits and driving fancy cars. Um, Your paper notes that in 2017, graduates working in private practice um, their mean national salary was $119,000 and seven, dollars um, not cents. I'm having a hard time with numbers today. And I think it's because of the crane that was just going down the hill that kind of distracted yes, me. Yes, construction zone. So yeah, it's weird talking to you all from um, Estes Park, Colorado. It's beautiful out, but they have quite a bit of construction going on. So what I was trying to say was a salary of around $119,000. The public interest national mean salary was around $51,000. Government attorneys had a mean salary of around $60,000. What do salaries look like for rural attorneys, though? So again, I wanted to say we don't have a lot of great data on this. So unfortunately, we don't have a good idea of exactly what they make. So this for this article, I reached out to the career services offices um, at the University of Maine and the University of South Dakota School of Law. And at both of those places, they basically gave me estimated numbers that are lower than what, um, certainly lower than what the urban sort of, or not even the urban, but just the national average for private lawyers is. And they're more in line with what a public interest lawyer would make. So the estimate from Maine is that when we look at just our rural lawyers alone, we're talking somewhere in the 40s. In South Dakota, we're probably talking somewhere in the 50s. But even in South Dakota, we couldn't break it down between sort of our bigger markets like Sioux Falls, and then all of the smaller markets. But the takeaway is that private practice rural attorneys, at least when they start practicing, are making salaries that are more like what you envision a public interest attorney would make, and they are not in the range of a private practice attorney. I've recently been looking into public defender contracts in Utah, um, full-time public defender contracts. And some of these, um, you know, provide for what, what was I thinking of? $38,000 a year, but that includes overhead, that includes investigation costs, that includes 
everything. So these are certainly not glamorous, high paid jobs. No. Yeah. And I mean, we do know, I mean, I don't want to discourage people from doing rural legal work because most rural attorneys, they have enough work. Mm -hmm. Um, Once they're established, once they kind of have their business running, they end up having successful careers. But during the beginning, right? Like when you're starting off and you're making your big student loan payments and you're just starting your career, you really are in a tight situation because you're not getting that big salary that a lot of um, folks in bigger cities are earning. So let's talk about what you want to see happen to help those new graduates who are interested in going to practice in rural settings. Um, Let's talk about federal loan forgiveness. Um, And let's just talk about the programs that are available in the first place. Um, You discuss public service loan forgiveness programs in your paper. What are these? Yeah, so the federal government, of course, has a lot of different loan forgiveness programs, but I do think the critical one is the public service loan forgiveness. So basically, that's a program that allows you for, um, you have to work in full-time employment in a public service job, and that's defined basically as government work or working for certain um, nonprofits. It has to be full-time work, and if you make income-based repayments for a total of 10 years, all of your loans are forgiven at the end. Okay. So that's a wonderful program for a lot of people, right? Like, I mean, that can make a difference in where you potentially choose to work, right? Um, It doesn't help rural lawyers at all because they work for firms and a firm does not qualify as public service organization. And this links back to the mixed practice, right? Of a lot of these lawyers are actually spending a lot of their time doing public interest work because they prosecute or they do defense work or they work for the city attorney. And if those were full-time jobs, they would have their loans forgiven, Mm -hmm. but they're part-time jobs because of the nature of rural practice. So one of the big proposals I make, probably the biggest one, is that we should change the public service loan forgiveness program to cover rural lawyers, including rural lawyers in private practice, because that's where almost all rural lawyers are. Okay. So, you know, maybe expanding this program, but I found a really interesting, I found a chunk of your paper really interesting here where, you know, there might actually be problems with the public service loan forgiveness program just in its own existence in the first place. And it might actually have a really negative impact on those law schools that send graduates into rural practice. So could you explain that for us? Yeah. So this is definitely the the part of my paper that is going to be unpopular with the most people, right? As I'm saying, I don't like this program at all. Now, I propose that we expand it. So I also feel obligated to say, actually, I think it's kind of bad for rural schools. So the deal is, is that the more money you borrow, the more you benefit from the program, right? Because it's income-based repayments. So you only pay based on your income. You pay for 10 years and then your debt's forgiven. So the more you borrow, the more you benefit as a student. Um, So this would incentivize students to choose more expensive law schools. Urban law schools, right? And, right. And exactly. Urban law schools tend to be more expensive than rural law schools in the same way that private law schools tend to be more expensive than state law schools. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that in a way, the urban law schools are being subsidized by the rural law schools, which I think is just wrong because the rural law schools, like we know the rural lawyer, lawyer shortage is bad, right? We need more rural lawyers. So rural students are more likely to go to small rural law schools. Those small rural law schools charge less 
They're also more likely to produce lawyers who go back to rural areas. Um, and those students never get to benefit from the loan forgiveness programs because they're being charged something like 15000 a year in tuition and not 50000 a year in tuition, like a lot of folks who go to sort of the bigger, fancier urban law schools are paying. Yeah. And I appreciate you acknowledging this sort of difficulty that rural law schools face because, you know, you do advocate for expanding the program, but there are some other sort of policy implications. I don't think a lot of people really think through very much on this, where it's like, okay, should this be restructured such that rural schools aren't bearing the the massive burden of this? Should we just get rid of the program? Would that be better overall? I don't know. I mean, in my opinion, my, my answer is if we can afford to forgive over $100,000 of some people's student loans, that $100,000 forgiveness is going to the big schools, right? Yeah. And so they got those tuition dollars and their students are never paying them back. If the government can afford to do that, I just want them to give the small schools and, or even all the schools a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? That might not make a big difference at the wealthy schools. I can tell you a couple hundred thousand dollars make a huge difference at my small rural law school of South Dakota. And it would make a huge difference at my small rural law school at Northern Illinois. So I, I find this very persuasive. And I think something that people haven't really thought through enough. Yeah, because the government's subsidizing legal education, and they're subsidizing at the tail end for individuals who decided to go to more expensive schools, get bigger subsidies. Okay. So this is, you know, I hope that you follow up on this even more about canceling the program altogether. I think it'd be a really fascinating topic, Um, a controversial one, to say the least. Certainly is one that's largely unpopular, but I hope that sort of people understand that it does create some sort of odd incentives and Mm -hmm. it creates some odd subsidies too. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about recruiting. So law schools in rural communities, you know, sometimes they have a really difficult time with recruiting. Um, You know, if those of you who are listening, if you are at a smaller law school in a rural location and have been on, um, you know, admissions committees and the like, you you know what that sort of pressure can be like sometimes. Um, So how would we be better able to recruit students to, you know, more rural law schools, more rural locations um, by expanding the public Um, public service loan forgiveness program? Well, I think that, um, you know, you expand the program, you sort of say there's more opportunities for your loans to be forgiven, right? But I also think that law schools in their recruiting can just play up this idea that, look, rural practice is public interest. So the American Association of Law Schools, the ALS, just did a big study called Before the JD. And that study tells us what we really are all already knew, which is people go to law school because they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And we know that students choose law schools where they think that they're going to sort of get implicated in public interest work and they'll get public interest jobs after they graduate. I mean, there's a number of urban law schools that immediately come to mind when you think about public interest, right? You think about Northeastern. I found this great clip from a university of DC, uh, law schools like kind of clip about sort of a self-promotion where the student says I chose the University of DC's law school because they get public interest work yeah well in much the same way rural law schools you know those small law schools in small rural states they already get the public interest work of rural practice right Mm -hmm. we have the infrastructure set up to get students to go back to small towns, make a huge difference, kind of really impact their community. But 
the small law schools like we're at, they need to play that up and sort of tell students, look, you will be doing community service. You'll be doing public interest work. Even though you work at a private firm, you're making a huge difference to your community. Absolutely. I think, you know, those students could have a really outsized influence in their communities that way. And, you know, some elite law schools, you know, Columbia, Chicago, NIU, not NIU, excuse me, NYU. I wish we had a big public public service loan forgiveness program at NIU. Um, you know, our our mutual um, alma mater, Berkeley. Um, they've got their own um, sort of loan forgiveness programs, but they're rather limited in scope as well, aren't they? Yeah. So <coughs> they have what they call LRAP programs. So loan repayment assistance program. So that supplements any loan forgiveness you get from the federal government. All of the T14 schools have these. As you go down the list, schools have them. Um, The T14 is really, you know, some people have called it an an arms race to make sure that they have the best LRAP programs because that brings in students who know they want to take jobs where they can't pay off their loans. So I went through and read all the LRAP programs for the top 14 schools. And some of them, most of them limit these loan repayment help to if you're in a traditional public interest or public service job, right? So you have to work for that nonprofit or you have to work for the government. If you work for a private firm, you're automatically out. Now, Michigan stood out as the only one who says explicitly, we cover everything, including rural practice, because we want our graduates to go back to their small towns and small communities and make a difference. And of course, I was so excited to read that, but it's like all the LRAP should be amended to include that language. So for example, Yale doesn't have a type of employment limitation. Their limitation is just about the dollars earned. Mm -hmm, So presumably mm -hmm. they would cover rural private practice, but they don't state that, right? Michigan is the only one who kind of goes out there and says, actually, we think it's a really cool thing if you go back to your small community or, you know, not to your own, but any small community and make a difference by working there. Absolutely. And um, it's nice to have that very explicit encouragement because I don't think, you know, I I don't think a lot of students without that sort of nudge would actually consider like, oh, you know, this rural private practice might be covered too. Um, So are you, are you advocating that these LRAP should be expanded to also cover rural private practice like Michigan's then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Michigan right now is the gold standard in covering rural practice. And I think all the LRAPs really should expand to do the same thing. You hear that Berkeley law, you should expand. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been really happy if you expanded many years ago. Um, So, you know, these internal loan programs could also be used to, you know, recruit students to these um, places with rural lawyer shortages. Um, So, you know, I think it's interesting because we think of law students and we think of lawyers and, um, you know, I think some people think in much more sort of, um, I don't know. They don't actually consider the fact that a lot of students are motivated by public interest work. You know, I, I think a lot of people in this country think that, okay, lawyers and, you know, especially law students who want to become lawyers someday um, are motivated by sort of these cynical sorts of concerns, like making money, buying houses, buying cars. But a lot of them, I think, would be very much motivated to practice in rural areas, um, knowing that they could get some assistance and knowing that they could provide, um, you know, a really valuable public service to communities out there. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I think there's a huge space to help students, to encourage them to go to rural communities. Um, We just kind of have to capitalize 
I'm pitching it in the right way. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, and, you know, I really do hope that you keep following up on this research about the rural lawyer shortage and what we can do to mitigate it. All right. Thank you. Philadelphia lawyer in old Philadelphia tonight.